those in the community that do not uh, truly uh, live in keeping with their confession. So he's talking about those who are within the city. He's established, and yet there is hardship because there are those who say one thing but live in another fashion. Verse 12, for it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, that is to disrespect me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Here's his counsel. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I, I will trust in you. There's commentary about who this speaks of. Some say Ahithophel, the one who betrayed David uh, to Absalom, others say it's Absalom himself, the one who went with his father to, uh, to worship and yet who turned upon him. And we can see all of those historical uh, aspects of this psalm, but we also see in it fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, you, a close friend, betrayed me when we think of Judas Iscariot and how he betrayed his Lord and how he turned against the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're mindful that in him alone, we have forgiveness for such behavior, but we must turn. And when we do, when we call upon him, the Lord will save. When we speak to him, he hears our voice. When we call out to him, he redeems. And that is our hope and that is our confidence, even in times of difficulty. We want to respond with number 27B in our hymnals. 27B, Jehovah is my light and my salvation near. Stanzas 1, 2, 4, 6, and 10. You have to turn the page. 1, 2, 4, 6, and 10 of number 27B.
Let's go to the Lord now in time of congregational prayer. Oh Lord, as we gather under your call to hear from your word again, to hear from you, we rejoice in your loving authority. You are one who is not abusive or exploitative in, our, in your leading towards us, but you are one who loves us, one who hears us when we call, and the one who saves, the one who hears our voice and redeems our souls. Lord, we know that at times we can feel distressed. As the psalmist did, he was concerned. His heart was in anguish within him, and the terrors of death had fallen upon him. He was troubled, for there was one who was very near to him, one who had gone up to your house with him in sweet fellowship, but had now betrayed him. Lord, we know that this can happen, that there can be false false confessors in even even in the church and those close to us and we recognize the importance of leadership we thank you for leading your church through men called by you equipped by you in teaching and governing and showing mercy as we're going to see tonight grant us hearts that are quick to obey and eager to serve and thankful for the gifts that you've given to all of us, recognizing difference in calling and in placement in the church, yet called to use our gifts for the good of others. We know that trouble can come into the community of believers, keep us alert and vigilant, exercising discernment in truth and love. Grant our leaders such discernment, a zeal for the truth and compassionate heart as your Son, our Lord Jesus, has for his church. Grant us compassion, conviction, as we seek to be representatives for you in a world that needs your word and that needs to see a loving and truthful hand. We're in such a time of confusion, chaos, as we see our culture turning away from the only standard upon which we can live, namely your word, thinking that somehow we can create our own truth and redefine terms and still function. And Lord, we know that that will not work. Your word is that foundation upon, we much, upon which we must live, and only as we found ourselves upon that can we stand firm in the storms, only as we hear from you, and then obey your commands and hear your word. Can we have peace in this heart? There will be, or for in this world, there will be trouble, but we are told to take heart that you you have sent your son who has overcome the world, who now reigns at your right hand and who directs all things, that you might be honored and glorified. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in your church and in your people. As we prayed that this morning, we prayed again this evening. We would be those who cast our cares upon you, for we know that you do care for us, that you will sustain us, that you will never permit us to be to be removed, for you have, have your people chosen, and you keep them and in your hand, and no one can snatch them from you. Oh Lord, we want to say with the psalmist that we will trust in you. 
Help us to be humble, to be led by you. Grant us a deeper understanding of that governance and leadership that we experience as we look in your word and see it applied here in this church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to number 406 as we sing together, Jesus with thy church abide. We're going to be looking at the church here in a few moments, at the governance of the church, and it is our prayer that the head of the church, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, would be the one leading and guiding us. Jesus with thy church abide stands as 1, 2, 3, 7, 8, and 9. First three and then the last three of number 406 as we stand to sing. invite you to turn in God's Word this evening to Acts chapter 20, page 929. The Bible's there before you, and also 
keeping your hymnals out to turn to the Belgian Confession, Articles 30 to 32, page 866 on the back of your hymnals. We'll be looking at the Bible says about the government of the church. The Apostle Paul was very concerned that the church be organized and led by spiritually qualified men and that in keeping with what the Lord Jesus Christ had done in calling disciples to himself to follow those who were apostles in the church, those who had seen him and been with him and who saw him resurrected, those giving that testimony, that office being the foundation upon which the church was established. We saw them with miraculous powers to prove their call, to show that they were those who had been called to the Lord and were to be listened to. We see that office, the apostolic office, ending with those who had seen the Lord. And as they die off, we see a movement as the church is called to raise up other leaders. And we're going to see how Paul goes around and elects elders and deacons, encourages Titus to do that, and Timothy. And throughout the New Testament, we see how how God is doing that. But what we see above all else in, uh, in our study of Scripture is that the church has as her head the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the body of believers. The true church is the body of believers which he has purchased with his own blood. And we want to hear that in, in Paul's words here in Acts 20 this evening. And then we'll look at various passages uh, as a give us the content of Articles 30, 31, and 32 of the Belgic Confession tonight. Acts 20, Paul's come to Miletus, a coastal city, as he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he calls the Ephesian elders to meet with him there to talk to them about the church and how it was to look. And so we're using this tonight as we introduce the organization of and the governance of the church. This is the Word of God, Acts 20, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all, in, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
So far, the reading of God's own holy word. The congregation, the church, is Christ's church. He is the head, having purchased the church with his own blood. He's the one that cannot be set aside. No one, Peter DeYoung says in his commentary, no one and nothing can rob him of his crown rights. And the church isn't left to decide how it is to govern itself, what it's to look like, what will uh, be most profitable or most uh, uh, helpful, but rather we look to the Scriptures to consider what is uh, God's plan for the church. How does He want it to be governed? Uh, Dieter de Bray, writing in the time of the Reformation, wrote the, this confession to show that the protesting churches were not unbiblical in the way that they organized themselves. They were troubled that there was so much authority focused on one man, indeed supreme authority focused in one man in Rome, who when he spoke, spoke ex cathedra, that is he spoke as uh, one whose words were God's words and he could not be questioned in any way. Debray sought to show that the Scripture was the foundation of these protesting churches. There was concern about how the Roman church was being led. The church's leaders had taken authority of themselves and were adding and subtracting to the church things which the Bible had not taught. These articles are written to remind the kings and the leaders in the church that the organizational principles that the church is governed by are found in the Scriptures and must not be added to or taken from. The offices were not to be bought by the wealthy nor grabbed by the powerful. The order of the church was a spiritual order given by the Lord. We're covering a lot of ground here tonight. I want to be very honest about that, but these articles fit together We're just going to be giving an overview of them tonight. We're not going to be looking uh, deeply into each one, but we're looking at Articles 30, 31, and 32, and I want to read those for us now. Article 30, the government of the church. We believe that this true church, we've been talking about the true church, what is the true church as recognized by the Word of God, that it ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that our Lord has taught us in His Word. There should be ministers or pastors to preach the Word of God and administer the sacraments. There should also be elders and deacons along with the pastors to make up the council of the church. By this means, true religion is preserved, true doctrine is able to take its course, and evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check, so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need." By this means, everything will be done well and in good order in the church when such men are elected who are faithful and are chosen according to the rule that Paul gave to Timothy. Article 31, the officers of the church, we believe that ministers of the word of God, elders and deacons ought to be chosen to their offices by a legitimate election of the church with prayer in the name of the Lord and in good order as the word of God teaches. So everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call so that he may be assured of his calling and be certain and sure that he is chosen by the Lord. As for the ministers of the word, they all have the same power and authority no matter where they may be, 
since they are all servants of Jesus Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. Moreover, to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone ought as much as possible to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem because of the work they do and be at peace with them without grumbling, quarreling, or fighting. Article 32, the order and discipline of the church. We also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only master, has ordained for us. Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciences in any way. So, we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, excommunication with all it involves, according to the word of God, is required. As I said, there's a lot in these articles. We're going to look at them Uh, Tonight, as we move forward, John Calvin in his Institutes makes the point that the Son of God could have chosen to speak directly uh, to the church, but for many reasons, which he goes into, I'd encourage you to read the Institutes, Book 4 and uh, Article 3. He he refers to the many reasons that uh, the Lord chooses to use the means of men. He makes clear that while on earth, Jesus, that is, is making clear that while he's on earth, the fulfillment of his work here, uh, when, it is, when he has fulfilled his work, is to be uh, transferred to glory. He is to go to glory to be the one who is going to be interceding for his people. He's preparing the church for his, his uh, imminent departure, and he's equipping men for their leadership on, behalf, uh, on his behalf before he goes to heaven and he says, when I go there, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I will send the Spirit and you will do great works in my name. That's the very simple point this evening as this is more of a didactic sermon, I guess, more of a teaching sermon tonight, and that is this, that everything that's done in the church is to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of the elders, the work of the deacons, the work of the minister, these all point to the Lord Jesus Christ, and how He is perfect in each one of these capacities, bringing the very Word of God, being the very Word of God. The minister ought to follow that and bring the very Word of God. The elders ought to govern in a way that is in keeping with the truth, with the organization that God lays down, the authority structure. And the deacons are to represent Christ in mercy ministry, being Hands of compassion showing God's great love for His creatures. The presence of the Spirit accounts for the spiritual life of the church. And while it is true that all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, God has ordered that some be leaders in the church. And we'll look at that under our second point. But this evening we look at that focal point of the sermon being upon Christ, ordered by Christ's instruction, led by Christ's officers, and united by Christ's word. Christ is the head of the church. Why do we 
do what we do because we listen to the Word of God as it's set forth before us, the example of the early church, which is led by the Spirit of God when Christ ascends into heaven. He sends the Spirit, and the book of Acts tells us of the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in the church. What does it look like? Well, we'll look at that tonight. First, we note that the church is led by a spiritual polity. Article 30 says, we believe that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that God, or that the Lord has taught us in his word. Paul sets that out in Acts 20 there when he says, I was serving the Lord in what I did with all humility, with tears and with trials, not shrinking from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks. And he goes on of of his ministry, and he said he's doing that as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not a business. It does not have the same goals as a business. It's not to be run like a business. The title of the sermon was meant to grab your attention. Who runs the church? That's why we talk sometimes today, don't we? Well, who runs this place? Who runs the church? Who's in charge? And, well, we may say, well, you know, it's the leaders, and uh, they're the ones who who run the church. Many Protestant churches operate like a business, and sometimes the pastors are CEO. They have a plan for the church, and they're the ones who approve and give direction to every decision. They make the decisions. Leaders are sent off to seminars to get principles for growth and to learn secrets of organizational efficiency, and it produces a church which looks more like a showroom for the latest growth principles than it does a body of believers humbled before the Lord Jesus Christ seeking to live for His honor and glory. When numerical growth is made the goal in the church, it becomes very pragmatic. Well, how do we get to be that size of that church over there? How do we get to be the size of that church or to be organized like that church over there? It seems to be working for them. It seems to be bringing in big numbers. We want to do that. Well, God does not command the church to get numerically large so that he might be impressive, but to preach the gospel, which is foolishness to the world, but it is the wisdom of God, drawing people to himself that we might come and say, we are weak, but in him we are strong. We are weak and we have no pretense to the earth being gained by our numbers or by our sheer strength or by our a unity, but rather we inherit the earth as it is given one day at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, having meekness before him, trusting that he gives as gift what he has won for us. Jesus says, preach the gospel, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. There is where Christ promises to be present, where his people are submitted to his words. Be my witnesses, he says. God gives leaders to the church to prepare his people for works of service, Ephesians 4 says. Talking there about all of the various offices clear call given to these leaders to preach Christ, to model His ministry, to preach and administer the sacraments, 
for the pastor to care for the flock of Christ, building his church through the word, extending mercy ministry. There are some churches today, Protestant churches, which believe that a strong church structure will squelch the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. We don't want to have a structure, and this is the way we do things. We want people to just be moved and to do whatever comes to mind and whatever moves them emotionally. But God gives order to his church. Indeed, it says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, God is a God of order. Now, those structures can be uh, somewhat prohibitive to respond to the Lord, but that is not the structure. That is not the, the directive that's the problem. It is our own hearts, our own hesitancy to follow. But within that structure, the early church, as it transitioned from the Apostles set up those spiritual offices of minister or recognized those spiritual offices of minister, elder, and deacon. These offices were the early example of a council. It says it here. They should, there should be elders and deacons along with ministers to make up the council of the church. To come together and in the wisdom of many counselors to discern what God would say in his word. That always being the focal point. Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology says this, Reformed churches do not claim that their system of church government is determined in every detail by the Word of God, but do assert that its fundamental principles are directly derived from Scripture. That's our, that's our desire is that we would be organized according to the Word of God. The back of our church order, perhaps you've not looked there, but in the back of our church order there are a list of 17 foundational principles of Reformed Church government. Now, I thought, well, I kind of hesitated to read these. I thought, well, that's going to be hard to listen to. But this is, this is from Scripture, and this, this, is, this is helpful to us as we're, as we're thinking about why we, we are governed the way we are. Listen to some of them. I'm not going to read them all. But number one, the church is the possession of Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant. Acts 20, Ephesians 5. Number two, as mediator of the new covenant, Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians 1 and 5 and Colossians chapter 1. Because the church is Christ's possession and he is is its head, the principles governing the church are not a matter of human preference but of divine revelation, Matthew 28 and Colossians 1. Number four, the universal church possesses a spiritual unity in Christ and in the Holy Scriptures, Matthew 16, Ephesians 2. 1 Timothy 3 and 2 John 9. Member churches meet together in consultation to guard against human imperfections and to benefit from the wisdom of a multitude of counselors in the broader assemblies. The decisions of such assemblies derive their authority from their conformity to the Word of God. Proverbs 11, Acts 15, 1 Corinthians 13, and 2 Timothy 3, and there are others. But what we see in this application of the Word of God is that there is a structure that we ought to follow, that we're not just all at the mercy of someone saying, but I had a vision, or I had, I had a notion, or I had a thought. Rather, that God is giving direction, and it is laid out for us in the Word. The Word of God is clear about what the minister and the elders and deacons are called to do. Ministers that preach the Word, administer the sacraments, Elders are to govern 
give direction and leadership to the church, provide spiritual oversight and overseer, deacons to be operating in ministry of mercy. And then the purpose of all of this. What is the purpose? Why, why is this important? Debray says here in Article 30, by this means true religion is preserved, true doctrine is able to take its course, and evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check, so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. We hear, of the, we hear the three offices there, and this is the call of the church, the spiritual order or polity. Well, who runs the church? We, as I said, we sometimes talk that way. Maybe we think that the most involved are the ones who should run the church or the biggest family, but we must not forget that the church is Christ's church, which he has purchased with his own blood, as we have read already tonight, Acts 20, verse 28. He gives direction that the church is to be governed by those elected Word of God teaches that men are chosen by way of election to their office. We see that in Acts chapter 14, as Paul uh, goes to the churches, they uh, elect elders for each church, leaders, the other offices developing as the church grows. This is done with much prayer, and the men nominated must fit the spiritual qualifications of the office. We find those in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where it speaks of all of the, uh, the, the qualifications, above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, and, and on and on it goes. Why, this, why putting this down? Why, why including this in the church's uh, confessions? Well, because what they were seeing in the days of the Reformation was a long line, a long history of bad developments within the church from the time of the first century church on down to the 16th, even going back to 15th, 14th, 13th, 12th century. There was appointment of men to leadership by those who were in power saying, well, I'll give you an office if you will give this amount of money. Or appointing those who were not spiritually mature, men who had no interest in the things of the church but merely wanted another title. We even have a name for it. It's called simony. What did who, and we look at the scriptures, what did Simon Magus want to do? He wanted to buy an office from Peter. There's a danger of that when we focus too much upon what we think is best for the church. Oh, that person would be good for the church. Or that, they, they would give a lot of money or they, would, they have business experience and so on. And we forget the qualifi- spiritual qualifications. These are not what... These are not the ones whom Christ wants ruling his church. The reformers really wanted to avoid two extremes, ruled by a few who appointed friends and family to office, but also they wanted to avoid the other extreme of ruled by uh, inner feeling with no, offices, uh, no officers or no polity. The Anabaptists were doing uh, pressing for that. They had seen such decay in the church, and they said, you know, the church is, in effect, saying, they didn't use this terminology, but they said, in effect, the church age is over. We just have to move uh, about by the Spirit. And the Bible gives example, however, of men being elected to office. As I said, Acts 14, Acts chapter 6, in the office of deacon. And then the 31st article says this, 
Everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call so that he may be assured of his calling and be certain and sure that he is chosen by the Lord. Now, how do we reconcile that with that call when Paul says everyone who desires the office desires a noble thing? What if someone desires the office but is not elected? These are difficult situations to work through, to be sure. But what we must recognize is that God, as he gives order to the church, also calls us to patiently wait upon his calling to discern where he would have us to serve. We must wait patiently, prayerfully, and serve with the gifts that we've been given in the place where he has put us. And in, in and throughout life, we're not sitting there waiting, just saying, well, that's my aspiration. We say, but I want the office of elder. I want the office of deacon. I want the office of minister. I won't do anything until I get that office. We say, well, no, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not where it begins. It it's, begins by showing one's heart to serve, one's desire to serve. And not all offices are open equally to all. But there is place where each member's gifts are used for the common good. Following the practice of the church, as recorded in the Bible, the church today must be confident that Christ still leads and builds his church, gathering people together with their respective gifts in his timing for his glory, for his good. It includes the church officers. Christ has not abandoned his church nor left us without examples for how to function. We do well to know the passages that speak to this matter and to be in prayer that Christ would continue to provide all that's needed for his church to grow, to become more sanctified in the work that he's given us. Another concern the Reformers had in their day and age, which we see throughout, church, throughout the history of the church and in the history of, of civilization, is a, is a striving for position and place. It warns here in Article 31, as for the ministers of the Word, they all have the same power and authority no matter where they may be, since they are all servants of Jesus Christ, with the only universal bishop, the only head of the church, being Christ there's not to be a bloated hierarchy in the church of the, as there was in that day, which had no equivalent in the Bible. You remember that Peter refers to himself, 1 Peter 5, as a fellow elder. He doesn't say, well, I'm the head of the church and all of the church's supreme rulers will flow forth from me for time immemorial. No, he says, I'm a fellow elder who serves alongside of others. And the reformers saw the primacy of the The Pope is an attack on the kingship of Christ to rule over his church through his ordained officers. What was happening in the church of the day was power being invested in one. and The concern for union became heavy-handed. There was concern for all of the other religions out there. And they said, well, well, let's get it it focused in one person and, and he will speak authoritatively for us all. That's not how... God intended it to be, intended a plurality of leaders, as we see throughout. Now, it's possible in a Protestant church for that to happen. You get someone behind the pulpit who's very 
dynamic personality, someone who's very uh, gifted, and, and very soon it's, it's what he says is the way it goes. And that's the way it's run. And there's no question, if there is, they're out. And that's a danger in any denomination and any branch of the, of the faith. Calvin spoke often of the church office, but not with the emphasis that some give to it. He warned about those who were heavy-handed, those who were taking too much power to themselves. He also said, according to Scripture, that office is not so much a position of prestige as of trust, as of being entrusted with something. And I think that's very helpful for us to think about too. What is the minister's call? What is the call of the officers of the church? They are entrusted with a deposit. It's not a, well, I got to this office and now I set the terms, but rather I humbly serve in this office. What does Paul say there in Acts 20 again? He says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am one who's served in uh, throughout persecution and uh, many hardships, teaching from house to house, granting, giving the good deposit of the word that the church might be built up. This is not a position of prestige. It's rather call to serve and to guard that good deposit, not to advance one's position. It ties into uh, to what is said in Article 31, the next thing it said, the officers are holding a trust, therefore we must, they must answer to Christ and not to man. They, uh, they're servants of Christ to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, and therefore they answer to the Lord. They have that same uh, power and authority under Christ. We talk of officers, we're not talking about those who are closer to God, not making a distinction between lesser and greater Christians. That's also something we must note. All believers are children of God. Those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, made a part of God's family, all have need of Christ for salvation to the same degree. We are all alike sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. The distinction between those who hold office and those who do not is primarily, and I want you to note this, is primarily between calling and function, not between spiritual degrees, but between calling and function, how we're serving, how we're functioning in the church. What's required of the officers is that they prove faithful to Christ and their assigned tasks. We talk, uh, we could see that in Acts a six, I'm, I'm closer to that, so I'll look at the deacons first, and that is there to be men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, serving Him. But then we can go to First Peter, First Peter chapter 5 and hear what Peter says about uh, the elders when he says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now we hear that, and we hear that call, and we also remember that it is not only elders, deacons, and pastors who have a call. All believers are called to live faithfully before the Lord in the church. To protect against dishonor in the church... Peter Debray goes on to say 
that um, officers ought to be respected because of the work they do. Why does he mention this? Well, to make this point, respect doesn't come based upon one's ability, but from the office, one's rank or one's position. Officers will vary in giftedness. It's their calling that must be kept in mind. He says this, to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone ought to, as much as possible, that is in all things lawful, biblical, to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem because of the work they do. Be at peace with them without grumbling, quarreling, or fighting. What does uh, Peter say when he's talking to, uh, or the, the, the writer of Hebrews, rather, what, is he speaking to um, his hearers? He writes this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The calling must be kept in mind. It's not giftedness, not, not preference. We think of Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, what had happened? The super apostles came in behind him and the people quickly turned on Paul and they said, well, he's not very impressive. We like these guys. They, they speak with, with greater rhetorical flourish and they're, they're much more, uh, 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 e- they're easier to listen to. We want to follow them. This Paul, we're not so sure about him. And Paul says, no, I defend my calling and it is a calling to preach Christ and him crucified. It very easily happens where we say, well, I like this one over that one, or I prefer this one over that one, but we are to recognize that we show equal honor to those in office as those who've been called to that office, whether it's minister or elder or deacon. Then Article 32 begins this way, we also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only master, has ordained for us. Doing things in good order is biblical, but the structure established, the practices mandated, must not deviate from what Christ has ordained. It's easy for those in office to take more to themselves than is lawful. Sometimes it begins with good intentions, adding to a practice to make it, or adding a practice because, well, this is really meaningful. I saw this done and I th- and elsewhere, and I think this is very meaningful, and I think it would be good in the church, but it's not prescribed. It's not declared in the church, or in the scriptures, rather. Sometimes... Uh, it's taking away, saying, well, it's just, that's such a mirror. It's just a formality that we do in worship. Really, it, has, it doesn't mean much to us anymore. Let's just take it out. Though it is prescribed in the Scriptures, we have to be very careful and guarded against such things. It's tempting to try and create a spirituality through extra-religious practices. Isn't that what the Pharisees did? They said, well, if, if ten commandments are good, let's, let's do a hundred. Let's do a thousand. Let's, let's show how, how zealous we are for the Lord. The more, the more commands, the, the more holy we'll become. Well, in fact, what it did is it led people away from Christ and, and focused them upon their own doing. It introduces a dangerous thinking in the church when we think that righteousness can be attained through law-keeping, giving false assurance to worshipers, not really giving the peace that only the gospel can give. For we see throughout scriptures that doing doesn't necessarily bring assurance. It just it leads us to say, I don't think I've done enough. I've done a thousand commandments, but I need to do 1,200. The gospel is that in Christ it has been done. 
In Christ, we live. Christ, we have our salvation. We're warned not to add or take away from what's given in the church, preaching sacraments and discipline, which focus us on Christ. By the time the Reformers uh, come to the church, they had, there was much regulation in the life of the churchgoer, even to the extreme. Church leaders, popes, and councils had made pronouncements on nearly everything. And again, order was good, but they started to regulate dietary issues and, and religious practices throughout the year, and each day had a certain uh, uh, function that had to be done in order to be in obedience uh, to God. And it became heavy, and what really the, 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 the unintended consequence was, so the people said, well, we're, we're done with this. We, we want liberty. We, want, we, want, we feel like there's, there's, there's too much uh, regulation here. And, and then, of course, what does the heart do when it rebels against the law? It says, well, I want license. I want to do, uh, not only am I not going to do those things, but I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And then put grace over the top and say, well, no, I'm, I'm saved by grace. I can do whatever I want. Saved by grace. Well, that's not the way we go either, is it? We're living, as I've said time and time again, in an ordered liberty under God's authority, not adding to it, not taking away from it. Authority is needed to restrain the sinful heart, to reveal sin in our hearts and to point us to Christ. But the answer is not, as Guido Debray says here, human innovations. He says, we reject all human innovations, all laws imposed on us in our worship, which bind and force our consciences in any way. Warns against human innovation. But again, we live under God. He doesn't give laws to bind us, but to say, this is the way, walk in it. This is the way of life. This is the way of liberty. This is the way of freedom. Turn away from sin, as we heard this morning, then walk in this way. These are the sacraments I have given. These are the laws that I have commanded. These teach you what Christ has done and point you to the way of grateful obedience. And decisions, of course, need to be made by the leadership of the church. And we should receive the leadership's decisions. He writes there as well, we should accept what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. Paul says that, all in keeping with Obedience to Christ, to the glory of God. And when there is refusal to submit to the commands of God and the order of the church, then discipline is called for. He says there is a place for that and that it is the work of the church, not the state. There were some in the church, or in the state rather, who were trying to come in and say, no, no, our our, it's our job as the state to enforce punish, uh, discipline, and we will do it uh, physically. There will be a corporal uh, 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 punishment administered to the body, and the church said, no, the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ is that which is spiritual and to the heart, speaking to the sinner and calling the sinner out from his wicked ways. Where there's refusal to submit, there is discipline, there is call to consider the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ gave the keys of the kingdom to the church, Matthew 16, to open and to shut by the word of God. The preaching, we're, we're, we don't have time to look at that tonight, but the, the, those keys of the kingdom, the preaching of the word opening and, the, and, and uh, closing, right? Saying, to you, the kingdom of God is open, right? Is what it's saying. You who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to you who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom is closed. You have no, no, no means by which to say, well, I'm going to go to, to heaven, though I do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He warns of that. He says, no, in the preaching, in the sacraments, who may come to the table? Those who have humbled themselves before the Lord, right? Those who see themselves as sinners, but those redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So helpful to us as the church has developed these things from, or, or discovered these things and put them down as they see them in Scripture. Discipline is not an act that the elders use to shame, not a, not a work that is uh, to draw undue attention. When it comes to the point of excommunication, we call that the extreme remedy. It's a remedy. It's meant to restore when someone is walking away from the Lord and saying, well, I, I, I'm comfortable living the way I'm living, but in the, in the providence of God, the leaders of the church say, well, that's, that's not where you need to be walking. You're walking away from the Lord, and there's a warning to the point of excommunication. It's a warning that says, by your actions, God's Word pronounces that you are not walking with Christ, not, not the elders taking this to themselves. It's, it's an announcement of what the Word of God is teaching, and it's to consider the seriousness of sin that the individual might turn back to Christ in repentance. Not saying, coming back to the elders and saying, what do you want me to do? What do I have to do to satisfy you? But rather, what has God's Word said? And where, where, where have I sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ and against God, the Father of those who believe? It's the work of Christ through His church. And must not be given to any other authority. It's not the states to do. They don't understand the gospel. They, don't, they look at it as, well, you've kept this law or you've not kept this law. In the providence of God, he says, there is grace extended. There is mercy. But you are to walk in uh, works in keeping with repentance. Well, there's so much more we could say. And my concern is that it's been largely instructional. But I I think it's important for us to understand that the church doesn't just form based upon one's tradition. I say, well, this is what I've grown up doing, and so we just keep doing it. We don't really know why we do it, but rather looking uh, to the Scriptures, seeing the plurality of, of officers elected in keeping with God's commands, representing the Lord Jesus Christ who is the head of the church, the one whom we represent, the one whom we serve. May God give us faithfulness in these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we thank you for the church and we thank you for the order in the church, we also recognize it is easy for us to resist order or to to add to order to the things that we have, are doing or to take away from them in our own wisdom. But Lord, we pray that you would keep us focused upon your word, 
doing those things that uh, are taught in your word and where we need to be corrected, let us humbly be corrected, where we press on and must be full of conviction and courage. Give us that in this day, which is so anti-authoritarian. We pray, Lord, that we would understand our liberty is found in being released from sin and to walk away from that which is wicked, to walk in the freedom that is found in Christ, not to be bound to law-keeping, to think that we're saved because we've done enough of this or not done those things, and therefore we show ourselves worthy. We know that is not the case. We are all sinners saved by grace. We're so thankful that you guide us, that you call men to gospel ministry, that you raise up elders and deacons, that you utilize the gifts in the church in so many ways, all the aspects of the life of the church that are needful as we together want to show what a community of faith looks like. Lord, give us joy in service, gratitude and obedience. And above all, praise in our hearts to you, the giver of every good and perfect gift, the one who offers forgiveness full and free in Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Our refuge, our strength, our foundation is in the Lord. Number 46a God is our refuge and our strength, our ever-present aid, the one who brings us through all difficulties, the one who keeps us grounded. We're going to stand to sing one, two, three, and five, one, two, three, and five of number 46A.
Let's pray. O oh God, our ever sure defense, our fortress, we are so thankful for the picture of that city to come, which is fed by your mercies and your power, by your grace. As we press on to that reward, we're mindful of work that is given to the church to call the nations. We pray for the Hope Center and its uh, mission there in Toronto, Reverend Zechfeld and all those involved there, that you would build them up in your most holy word, that they would be an attractive community to the world as they see the unity that they have in Christ. May the order there be well-established so that the church might function faithfully. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and confess our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed on page 851 in the back of our hymnals. We come together mindful that we are united in the triune God and we confess together those words in response to the question, Christian, what is it you believe? We say together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him, to Christ, be glory in the church, to the Father, 
the Son, through the working of the Holy Spirit, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.